Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm Daryl Etherington, your host for TechCrunch's podcast, all about startups and the founders who create them and the stories behind the startups. I'm here with the certified, board-certified doctor to my also board-certified lab technician. Neither of these things are true. Yeah, I'm suddenly in a lot of student debt (laughs) just from a few words that you just said. I'm Jordan Crook, not a doctor. Not <laughs> I was like, wait, even we really could be, educated. Yeah, I we mean, could be like, legally actioned for these claims. So never mind. Yeah, False not claims. a <laughs> There's a reason that we started that way. Our guest this week is the reason, and we will get to our guests in a minute. But first, I want to talk about something we have coming up this very week. When you're listening to this, this is coming out on Monday and Wednesday. This coming Wednesday, April 6th, we have the Austin City Spotlight at TechCrunch. That includes a TechCrunch Live that's a virtual event episode focused on Austin startups and investors. You can register to get an invite to hop in and it's a free event to attend and we have this virtual platform hop in and then you can ask the speakers questions. You can network with other attendees. A lot of folks from the Austin ecosystem will be in there and you can also talk to us i mean me jordan will probably be in there from time to time yeah hanging out various yeah tech crunch staff will be around yeah yeah i mean we've got a panel with zebra and silverton partners which is pretty cool and essentially if you're like a founder or in the early stage tech ecosystem in austin it's one of those can't miss things there's just gonna be a big collection of those folks there and there's a pitch off from austin-based early stage startups so you can hear them pitch find out what's cool and new in that area and hear investor feedback on those pitches so should be pretty cool yes and related today we have a very special episode because we spoke to julia cheek from everly health which is based in austin it's a home and lab medical testing company and it's also a telehealth company they cover a lot of bases more all the time they started as everly well which was a company that debuted at Disrupts 2016 in San Francisco. Then they expanded. They acquired a bunch of companies and changed their name last year and cover way more. So they started just focused on at-home consumer testing. They've expanded into the lab space and they handle lab diagnostics for a number of different companies now. Just growing like crazy. I think Julia said they're up to 600 people. So yeah, it's really exciting to talk to someone who is captaining this kind of rocket ship. Also... Great to talk to Julia because she is a TechCrunch Battlefield alumni, which we always love to do. But she was there 2016, TechCrunch Mm -hmm. Disrupt, San Francisco. She has fond memories of it, of meeting Jordan specifically. I don't think she remembers meeting me. (laughs) I remember you. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks. It's always good to be remembered by the person who I co-host this weekly podcast. Yeah. The person who knows you best. But... No, I think it was cool. She was at Disrupt and like, it's always super cool to hear the companies that kind of like launch on our stage grow so much. I mean, it's just like seeing a little sapling turn into a mighty oak. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And Julia explains better than we ever could why she was the person to steward that company through its very earliest days to where it is now and to the future. So enjoy. Hello, Julia. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Daryl. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. 
Yes, yeah, back on TechCrunch. Yeah. We've spoken before, and I'm just looking at right now in one of my browser windows the Disrupt SF 2016 post about Everly Well, yes. not Everly Health at that time, <laughs> and a photo that I think I took, which those are always awkward to take because people are like, what do you want a photo of? Like I have a lot of people are like, I have a computer screen. Do you want a photo of my computer screen? But you, you at least had a box, which was cool. I remember, I remember the actual <laughs> photo position. And you know what? I remember Jordan as well. That oh. was, I mean, I was like a total fish out of water in this TechCrunch battlefield <laughs> disrupt. I applied after the deadline. Didn't think there was any chance we'd get in. It was really honestly life-changing for me in the business. But Jordan, I think you were the MC. Remember that year? Yeah, it was 2016. It was 2016. I mean, San Francisco. Yes. Yeah. Oh man, I probably had like short hair and stuff. I was probably like a child. It was really, really fun though. It was an incredible experience for me. It actually was the feeder for me into Shark Tank of all things. And so there's a lot there. Obviously, we can unpack later, but was truly transformative for us at our stage. So. Right. That's why I bring it up. We like to start these off with a lot of praise for just the brand. (laughs) (laughs) What me and Jordan do, because then it goes downhill from there. Uh, Then we get into like everything you've accomplished and they dwarf our accomplishments. No, no, it was was huge. (laughs) It's like a really like core formation memory of me as a founder. So um, I love talking about it. Oh, that's awesome. But let's actually start with what I mentioned briefly. When you started then, it was Everly mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. And you're on here now as CEO of Everly Health, which is quite a different company, right? Yeah. I mean, that's often the way that things happen. But can you talk just a bit about where you started and then compare that, I guess, a bit to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's actually been just a year, I think, even this week that we became Everly Health. And certainly when I started the business back in 2015, about a year before I appeared at TechCrunch Disrupt, I started this based on a problem that I had, which I think you hear from many founders. This was me as a 30-year-old woman in a corporate job with good health insurance, having an unexplainable health problem Mm -hmm. and going from doctor to doctor to try to solve it. And all the while racking up a whole host of bills that I didn't even realize I was incurring because I was on, at the time, what was somewhat of a burgeoning, newfangled, high deductible health plan. Of course, that's now standard and normal, you know, seven years later. Going through this process, you know, I didn't come from a healthcare background. I was really a person in the system going through this diagnostic experience. I realized all of these doctors were uncoordinated. They all had their own specialties and they were all ordering a bunch of tests. I never actually got those results in most cases. I got a voicemail or a call saying, hey, from the nurse saying, hey, everything looked normal. When I was able to get the access to those results and compile them, many times I might have been clinically normal but very borderline or not normal for my age and or trending differently than I had in the past. And then, of course, the experience was then topped off with not only no real diagnosis, but also, you know, six months later, these bills that were either towards my deductible or completely out of network or any number of categorizations that I didn't really care what they were, except that I had to pay for them. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about the fact, and, and, you know, we can talk about if I knew I wanted to just jump into an industry that I had no experience in as a solo founder. But I knew like this was a problem that I realized very quickly. It was my problem, but it was a problem that everyone probably had in lab testing. And specifically, I was focused at the time on a market that I knew. I mean, it was what I knew, which was women from 25 to 45, oftentimes not taken seriously in the healthcare system, needing answers to things and often being hit with significantly higher bills as they go through the system to try to get help. 
And I realized lab testing had been really not innovated on in terms of care delivery. And so it seemed like something that was kind of not sexy when you talked about digital health at the time. And yet something I saw these clear trends that were really both in favor of that industry needing transformation, but also something that everybody needed. It was like Mm -hmm. going to the DMV. Had to do it. Yeah. Nobody liked it. And so that was how I got started then. And then, you know, now we're much bigger. Yeah. It's felt like, I mean, I've said forever, I feel like that it would make so much sense. You know what modern fertility does when you send them yeah. your tests and they're like, this is FSH. And like, FSH means this. And here's like, I'm oh, handing it to stuff. you yeah. like you're a yeah. second grader. And like, you want this number or this number, but not this number. You know, it's like very kid gloves people which like isn't really kid gloves it's just like the average human who doesn't have a medical degree mm-hmm. but right i mean i remember my last physical getting my results back and they like emailed them to me and the doctor was like oh cholesterol is a little bit high but that's normal for your family okay i'll talk to you later and I, there's like 45 numbers on here and some of them are not within the normal range so like that's okay right. because of some combination of them like mm. it's it, loosely defined okay yeah yeah it's like <laughs> Can we, and obviously, like, I don't think doctors have the time, right? Like, unfortunately, to like sit and be like, let me teach you about all of these different things that happen in your body to make it function properly. Why this is normal and not normal. But like, it feels like there's an important need there, right? Like, just be like, oh, you kind of understand and have some bit of control over your health. Right. And it's an interesting model that we've now seen a lot of opportunity with physicians because in the early days, this was not normalized, right? Even though the science had been around that had been used by health plans for decades, providers were like, wait a minute, I only know how to look at my two labs that I work with. But if you think mm-hmm. about what was happening at the time, people were bringing physicians their 23andMe results. That content, mm-hmm. Jordan, is actually the most sophisticated part of delivering this model is making it understandable and yet usable for people, whether it's Modern Fertility or 23andMe that was kind of the originators of some of this in the consumer realm. And so there was this movement to say, okay, how can we actually help doctors if they know they're going to have to run these tests? How do you help them get the data before the patient comes in to actually make the appointment a lot more effective instead of having to do this cursory follow-up? I think that is something that took a long time to catch on. But as we come into kind of current moment, is certainly something that is a lot of benefit both for clinicians and for the patients because this was kind of out there for a long time as this bolt-on to what was the standard system. And I think right. like the normalization of it with physicians is going to be something that actually then ends up delivering the full value of why people are getting tested. And getting tests before you go into the doctor too, right? Like, yeah. like my partner is a doctor and can like mm-hmm. essentially ask a doctor to script her lab tests and then she schedules her doctor appointment oh right yeah it's like is genius when you think about it but like they don't yep. do it that way and then they call no. you and they're like i have two seconds and i just wanted you to know like you either have to go see 25 people or you're fine and like that's all you get and then when you have to go to a new doctor you're like i don't know starting over like the, yeah call her she might know but she might not remember <laughs> you know like i don't know yeah, yeah. It's just it's a mess, man. We should move to Canada. You want to move to Canada with me? <laughs> no, no. That's I, I was gonna say because you know normally I talk about how great healthcare is here, but I just got my physical. It's weird because it was like it's still pandemic practices mm-hmm. at my doctor's office. So she was like, "All right, we just do virtual physicals unless you know whatever." Which went. She was like, "How are you feeling?" And I was like, Good. "Yeah." She's like, "That's like great." Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then. 
She said, I'm going to email you a lab test request and go to any, you know, lab corp or whatever it's called up here, like nearby and just get it filled out and they'll send that back to me and then I'll follow up or not, depending on what mm. the results are. Right. Wow, and it was fun. like, ah, I haven't done it because I'm lazy. But the this is like a question I had on the other side that maybe shows too much about me. But is there a consumer hurdle you have to get over where it's like, I would rather not know this. I actually kind of yes. like when the when the yes. doctor just says like, you're okay. And then you're like, sweet, great. That's all I needed to know. I don't want to think about it at all. I don't even want right? to go to the doctor for them to say that. Like, I don't even right. want to risk it for the biscuit. You know what I mean? Like, I'd rather just not go right. and just be like, I'm okay. I'm sure I'm okay. Just roll those dice. Yeah, just see how, I'm probably know. okay. <laughs> but I think like this gets at the core of why we haven't been able to change behavior in healthcare, right? Which is ultimately people want a quick fix. They want a prescription. They want a solution or people don't want to engage. So I do think it's important. It's a little bit of why we created a different model of, you know, we do cholesterol testing. We do diabetes testing. We do condition management in addition to wellness and vitamin testing. But a lot of the reason for that is because we don't want this to be a nice-to-have ancillary need. We want it to actually solve core affordability and healthcare problems. And I think that mm. I'm not going to sit here and claim, Daryl, that we are going to be the be-all, end-all in shifting millions of people's behavior change that need to be managing these conditions. It will take us and others. Yeah. And integrated kind of support and engaging structure to change population health overall and really affect a lot of these conditions. But I think what we can do is oftentimes the challenge doctors have once people get to the doctor is getting them to take the test to get the data that shows them they need to make a change. And that is something we are very, very good at. And so I think that that is really powerful. And, you know, we do a lot of cancer screening tests and people will get abnormal results and it motivates them at higher rates to actually go and get the confirmatory diagnosis. And so that, I think, there's no silver bullet. There's nothing to say, like, just a test itself is going to solve the problem. But I do think it is one lever that can make a meaningful difference if you have the data. But certainly some people don't want to know. People are stopping testing now for COVID because they don't want to know. Right? Right. That's right. I think there's, like, being armed with information makes such a difference, right? And I feel like so often, like you're talking about cancer screenings, right? Like I went in and got a physical and had a breast exam where they were like, oh, we feel something a little weird. And I was like, it doesn't feel weird to me because like I know and it's like normal or whatever. And she's like, no, 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 it feels weird to me. This is her first time ever examining me. So like, go get a sonogram, but they're probably going to make you do a mammogram. And like, essentially, when I went to my gynecologist who does know, and was like, you didn't need to do any of that. Like, I know, and you're fine. She was like, what will happen with those cancer screenings is they will send you all the way through. They're not going to say like, oh, we didn't find something unless they look in all the ways. Right. So like, if they don't see something on the sonogram, they're like, let's bump this up. And if they don't find something on the mammogram, they're like, let's bump this up. And they will Mm -hmm. constantly bump up until they're absolutely sure, because they never want to say we didn't find anything even if the chances are this minuscule. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm told that before I go through that process, hey, like the chances are really, really, really low, but it would be smart. You can do it, like go do it. And here's how all these things work. Probably more motivation for me to be like, okay, fine. But I did the sonogram. They didn't find anything. They ordered the mammogram and I was like, no, I'm too stressed about this. I don't have any understanding until I went and saw my gynecologist later and had Mm. her sit down and explain everything to me that like, this is why they keep escalating. All I'm hearing is like, a radiologist is being like, you need a mammogram. That's all I hear, right? Not like we didn't find yeah. anything or we and did find something. it sounds like we're concerned or whatever, mm-hmm. right? It, yes, yeah. exactly. And so like, I think like just anything that helps you understand, hey, this might be a little off, but like, it doesn't mean you're going to die either, right? 
There's really easy ways to fix this and that and the other. I was reading It Starts With the Egg. Have you read that, Julia? I haven't. I haven't. It's like a fertility book. And she's essentially talking about all the reasons why women like struggle to get pregnant, particularly Mm. like folks with low ovarian reserve and like poor egg quality and all of these things. And the thing that was so uplifting about it is it's super informational. You get a lot of science in it. She's also like, if this is the issue, here's all the data that shows how you can solve that issue. It's like almost like nothing is insurmountable. Like obviously there are outliers there, but it gives Mm -hmm. you a like positive outlook. And there are a few things in health course there are things that have a terrible outlook and we can't do anything about them and they exist but like most things don't right like am i wrong to think right. that like the vast majority of things actually do have a solution so if you're in pain or there's at something the very wrong, least they have management management exactly right. yeah so like just the information piece it's like there's so little information passed from professionals or lab results mm-hmm. or HCPs or whatever to the patient. And there's such a disconnect there that it's like hard to be invested in your health at all. Plus the cost, plus the time and energy, plus the wait times, plus the, you know, it's like, why would anybody try? Why would I try? You know? And, and there's so much around the reversal, like exactly what you're talking about with the sonogram to the mammogram process. For example, like we have a high risk HPV test, high risk HPV screening is responsible for the vast majority of cervical cancer. So most women have HPV, most people have HPV. Mm -hmm. If you do not have one of these high-risk strains, it is likely to be inconsequential in terms of women developing cervical cancer. You need to know if you have one of these, I think it's four strains. That is what you need to know. And then you Mm -hmm. need to know if you need to then therefore have increased pap smears. And if you do, and if you have this and you know this information, Cervical cancer is likely curable if caught early. If caught late, it is incurable. Mm, And so it is a very drastic set of outcomes. And yet we just generally give women pap smears every other year. And we don't think about how much more effective we could be with some of these basic solutions that are proven. And again, getting ahead of it with getting the information. And then you would actually have information that helps you understand your relative and real risk level, right, of these kind of things. And so I think that there's just so much more that exists today, not even talking about innovation and what we have to build in the future, that could be better connected in terms of getting people information to actually give them the right next steps. Yeah. Is the cause, because it sounds like there's a few causes, right? It sounds like institutional inertia is a big cause, but it also sounds like, and just my firsthand experience from being in care facilities, Mm. like people are just always on their back feet, right? Like everyone's always reacting and they're inundated and overwhelmed on the healthcare practitioner side and professional side. So is that, it's almost like you never have time because everything you are doing all the time is essentially triage. And the few minutes you have to rest, it's like, I can't really think about how to do this better. I'm too busy just trying to recover for the next round of triage. What are the major contributing factors? I know incentive structures are also right. that. But like, how are you going about changing the fundamentals? And again, like you said, no one company can solve everything. But what are the steps that I guess Everly is taking generally to try to counteract some of these? Yeah, I mean, exactly what you're saying, Daryl. I mean, we, we, you can read countless articles for years around prior to the pandemic, right? Around physician time, time with patients, document management, triaging, all these things. And then you get these results that are genericized from your doctor because all they're trying to do is make sure you don't have some 
life-altering condition. If you're relatively within the bounds, you're not their priority. Somewhat Mm -hmm. understandably, right? These physicians have specialties. They're there to diagnose specific conditions. That's really what they're looking for. But when you think about what this amounts to now, especially with the significant healthcare worker labor shortage of all different specialties and qualifications, the significant burnout and mental health issues, it's obviously even more on fire than it was. And I think there Mm -hmm. are quite a few different types of diagnostic management and prevention management that can be self-administered or done in the home and at the right cadence. So for us specifically, we our top product is our colon mm-hmm. cancer screening test. That is offered by 35 different health plans at no cost to the members. And millions and millions of Americans have access to it. And it is a test that can detect blood in your stool and then indicate for you if you need to go get a follow-up and actually have the diagnostic test done. It keeps you out of the doctor's office. It prevents Mm -hmm. you from having to have that colonoscopy, which is awful, unless you have that abnormal result annually. And it's all self-administered and digitally enabled, right? And it's sent back into a lab. But again, you're able to still do that in concert with your provider, and yet you're taking actionability on it. And we have that with a number of tests, and you will see that, I think, evolve in terms of remote monitoring. Even things like taking your weight, measuring your waist, taking your blood pressure, like a lot of these vitals that are so essential to prevention and to condition management that people are going into facilities now and taking up provider time to do. Yeah. Now, that has to be self-empowered, but we've already seen over the last two years total behavior change in the home. So if we're able to help people continue that path and see how much more accessible these choices are in the home with some of these new technologies coming out, I think it can really be a major burden reduction and see improved care and outcomes for practitioners. Yeah, they go hand in hand, right? Like the more that you empower people to take care of their own health, the less the burden on the actual healthcare system and profession. Well, and even just like having access to it, right? As a woman, you go to like several different doctors a year, right? And like... Mm -hmm. Men probably do too, right? For a bunch of different things. I don't know. I don't have men in my life other than Daryl. You don't <laughs> until don't. you reach a certain age. Yeah. After, after a certain age, you then start to. But for men, for most of their lives. Like a urologist like or something? GP and you're good. I mean, you know, leaving out sort of optometrists like, and whatever. But. Yeah, but like you also, I mean, you do have the optometrist, right? And like there might be right. like a little speckle in your eye that like means something weird. And it would probably be useful for your GP to know, particularly if a weird test came mm. Or like your dentist too, right? Like dental care is like actually really important to your overall health of your body, right? So like those two people never talk. It's like up to the patient to be like, hey, my dentist said like there's one time and I don't know, like you did something Mm -hmm. and it hurt. People don't, I'm not saying that people are stupid, but I think it's really hard to keep track of all that stuff, especially if it's not like really properly organized, which brings me to my question, Julia. I feel like you have all of this information that's like some of the hardest stuff right? These lab Mm. test results are like some of the hardest stuff for like a general patient to keep track of, but like you're giving it to them and they're like, okay, I have it. I I have this now and can do something with it. Is there plans to build into the back end of like all of these other folks so that, I mean, like the reason I ask is because my puppy went to Bond Vet. Do you know Bond Vet? I don't. It's really cool. I mean, it's like not the coolest thing in the world, but essentially everything gets on to an app. So like everything that's ever happened, every single time I've taken him to the vet, like I have access to this full medical history. If I have to go do anything, there's an emergency, Mm -hmm. like have it. Like this is what he has. This is what he's been checked for, blah, blah, blah. I don't have to keep track of it because it's all there. It just automatically goes. And like there should be something like that for people, right? Like I should have (laughs) my app that's like. This yes. is what the dentist the said. And the like, EHR battle EH- is long and bloody. <laughs> I know. And so first of all, 
just to kind of ring you through the strategy of how I felt we had to do this to actually stay alive as a company, we built outside of the EMR system. We built outside of selling into providers, selling into insurance. We leveraged physicians, right? But we knew that this had to be built adjacent because it would get crushed if trying to scale and build in the vertical. Now, of course, that's shifted and become overlapping during the pandemic. However, we always said, look, you pay one price up front. We couldn't even do that if we had built into health plans to start. Like, hey, we're going to tell you the price you pay. And you will never pay anything again without deciding to pay that by another service, right? I mean, not that radical and yet totally novel. And then building into health records was a totally closed off system and like really barely interconnected at the time. And now a lot of it is available through, you know, your health plan if you are a health plan member. Um, But I actually think I don't know that the problem is ever going to get solved, Jordan. I hate to say that. I think what you're seeing, like yeah. when you look at Gen Z, they're using healthcare in a totally different way than any other prior generation. I think it's because they're creators. They're oftentimes gig economy and or self-employed, right? And I think when you look at what they're doing, they're using insurance as catastrophic mm-hmm. and they're having it for like those particular situations. And they're building this ecosystem of self-selected services for whatever their particular needs are. Yeah. I wouldn't actually say it's that different than what we've all scrambled through over the last right. decade or two, but I think they have better access to new digital tools to be able to build that out themselves. And insurance is kind of forcing them in some ways to do that, right? We're looking at all the shift in consumer out-of-pocket spending, obviously the majority on high-deductible plans, all of which just means you pay for a large amount of your services. So I wish I was more optimistic on that interconnected one medical record situation, but I think the average person has over 30 different medical files by the time they're like in their mid-30s, many of which are not digitized. And it, you know, we feel really proud of the data we have, and we are looking at how do we integrate connected devices? How do we help people be able to bring more into the fold to include whatever medical records they want to just close to us for their own personalized care and then for telehealth offerings, but it's not quite as broad as kind of that example of bond. Yeah. Yeah. Would you pay for that though, Daryl? Like if, I mean, I would love if the insurance providers or something, because like, here's what I'm thinking. Like if it's all in your insurance plan, right? Like it's all in my little file from insurance and you built a service that was adjacent to that. I was like, Mm -hmm. Hey, insurance provider, give me that and I'll make it pretty. And I'll actually explain what it means and I'll put it on an app for you. I would pay for that. I think it's just, it's been so long. But I remember covering EHR like when it was first taking its baby steps and like there was so much hope and optimism around it, which was just ground down into nothing over the course of however many years. I have to agree with Julia. Like it just is not, the incentives are not there. The counter incentives are too great. Why would they want to keep them separate, though? What are the counter incentives? Why don't I understand? I think it's because people's tenure with any one provider or insurance is too low. So, like the average, I think lifespan, which is why it's needed. Why it's needed, but who is going to do it? There's no advantage to the physician or to the insurer to having the portability, and there's actually no advantage to the insurer in solving a lot of the long-term cost of care problems either, unless it's in Medicare, because they don't expect the person to be with them after, what is it, 18 months or so, maybe 24? Yeah. It's the duration of your employment now, right? And which is shorter and shorter all the time. Which gets back to the bigger problem around the American healthcare system really being employer-supported. And so then it's tied to 
job. So, whole oh, this is why Let's I tried to that. stay focused. Let's dive this into is that. why I tried to stay focused because there's so it's so, it's so much, right? I'm out here trying to dream big at 6:30. <laughs> the one place I've seen hope there is like pressure from and this sucks too because I don't necessarily want the pressure to come from them, but like entities like Apple who are so monolithic and they're like, "Hey, look, we want everybody to use this system and we're Apple mm-hmm. and so you kind of have to." Right. And then companies are like, "I guess we have to because your Apple, right? But it's still not enough mm. to get everybody onto the court. And it's, it's just not, it's not going to happen. I think to Julia's point, it's like all about individual user management and then the user tools making the stuff shareable in a way that mm-hmm. is easily consumable by any system. Apple Health is a good example mm-hmm. of that because the way mm-hmm. they output stuff for physicians is very you know, safe. And I think they adhere to some standard and that's why it has a bump now, but I forget what it is. But like, that's how I manage my health now. Although it doesn't go anywhere. I just keep it on my phone and look at it. Yeah. I mean, I have a Ura ring. I've got like a Apple watch. I've got all kinds of this stuff. And I like, yeah. And I put the stuff in there. I don't need Listen. to go take my lab test. I stood up twice no, today. No, no, but lab tests go in there too. Lab tests go in there. When I eventually get around <laughs> to taking them, they'll go in there. That's cool. How do I get it's, my lab yeah. tests in my Apple Health? Do I have to use Everly? No, I think you can. So the, you can some systems support yeah. it, but you can also manually enter a lot of stuff. So, I'm learning a yeah. lot. I'm still trying to stay optimistic. Okay. I will tell you. Uh, you should do it. I am optimistic. For what it's worth, I think the potentially only silver lining, obviously, out of the pandemic is that there has been changes that I didn't even think were possible. And specifically in testing, there's been so much funding going into new testing R&D that I think will make a huge impact on people's lives in the near term, like next five years. So I am very optimistic on that front. And I think... If there was an opportunity to break a lot of this down, I think it's now. Yeah, because none of that moved for forever. It didn't change. It just looked the same for forever, yeah. right? It looked like kind of like mine did, except instead of an email of the form, I would get a fax and I would have to return it by fax or something. Like, it was absurd, right? How behind Without exactly. fax machine. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the health tech space? Like, oh, significant. Yeah. Like your your uh, own? Yeah. I was like, no, 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 no. You, did, you mean, started out asking me about Everly Health. We did our own our own sweep of multiple companies that we bought, which has been really, really fun. But uh, yes, I think more broadly right now, for a number of reasons, there is an overproliferation of telehealth platforms. There is an overproliferation of COVID-specific testing companies that were started only right. post-March 2020. There's an overproliferation of what I would call home healthcare services type businesses. It is not that I don't believe in the trend of consumer-enabled, both telehealth, prescription, you know, all of these digital tools and home healthcare, but I think you're seeing the pendulum having swung a little too far. And some Mm -hmm. of these companies will make it, some will be bought up, but I think you'll see that development. The public markets for digital health are under tremendous pressure. Multiples have compressed substantially. That pendulum has swung too far one way. It'll come back to the middle at some point, but we probably won't see the valuations that we saw for the last three years or so in the public markets. And then more broadly, I think like actually strategically, which is what we did, you'll see services that were sort of verticalized very much becoming overlapping and having to offer more full suite services in order to really deliver a patient experience. And so you saw United announced a huge home healthcare acquisition just today. You've seen a number of acquisitions in the digital health space itself or mergers. We just had 30 Madison and NERCs. There's several others like that. I think the trend will continue probably for the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to explain a bit more about yours? Just because I I want to hear, because the timing was like, 
September 2021. Was it the end of pandemic? The fake end of pandemic one? I don't remember when things happen anymore. Yeah. No, I know, but I mean the one when we were all like, oh, it's over now. And then we're like, oh, no. (laughs) I think September was another wave. I think the end of the end of the quote end was like in the middle of the summer, right? Like May. But how much of it was great? That's right. It was the summer. Everybody thought like, this is the time, like this summer is going to rock. But what was like, was this on your radar before Mm -hmm. that, I guess? Or was it something that you were like, oh, well, this, the situation drives up the timeline, but we always wanted to do something like this or how did that work? So we acquired two companies in March of 2021 that vertically integrated a number of our partner capabilities. So we bought a home access health in Chicago, which had like 35 health plan contracts a CAP-accredited lab, significant at-home R&D on test assays in a manufacturing facility, but they were not digitized at all. They were a 20-year-old business, had had these health plans, and were delivering these home health testing services forever. And we separately, actually out of TechCrunch and Shark Tank, had been developing the same solution, but in a digitally engaged manner for Humana for several years. And so it was really an opportunity to bring that on and expand that side of our services. And then with PWN Health, this was really the engine and foundation that powered so much of consumer-initiated testing in the country. We had been partnered with them for six years since inception. And so I had for years been speaking with our investors and, you know, occasionally with PWN's CEO, who's now on our board, about would it ever make sense for us to combine There were a few reasons why we hadn't done it before. One, the structures of the company didn't make sense. We were high growth and venture backed. They were certainly growing, but profitable and PE backed, very different models. The other piece was more strategic, which was they were building up a client base that previous to the pandemic, I think would have seen us as competitive. Hmm. And while we really didn't have an impact on their businesses, it was essential to me that when we made this happen, that we were clear that we wanted to be actually the enabler of these Mm -hmm. consumer platforms and bring our own consumer expertise to help many companies succeed. It is not helpful if Everly Health is the only success story in the space. That is not what we want as an industry. That is not good for us and our marketing dollars, right? So our goal is that we can actually help many of these large players that are now making significant investments in similar models actually be successful and partner with them. And so that was a big piece of it, was just to really bring that under our wing and be able to say we can offer so many more core capabilities integrated together. And then, you know, not to be outdone, we did a third acquisition in October, which was a different model, early stage company of Natalist, but huge, incredible organic brand growth, significant retail distribution of their sustainable mom-founded, mom-backed pregnancy, ovulation, and fertility essentials. That's a pretty obvious fit. Our women's health category is our fastest growing category. Mm-hmm. Women are most of our consumers given the role of women in healthcare. And we were able to roll out some integrated, really great fertility bundle and women's health products very quickly. And we'll be digitizing a lot of that coming forward. Look, different place for different reasons. Some infrastructure, some product innovation, but ultimately it was the right moment in time. It was the right time to get both of these deals done. I didn't actually go out and raise our Series D predicated on necessarily going into this acquisition, but it positioned us to be able to do it really quickly. How did it feel as a founder who, in our own words, was a fish out of water and disrupt 2016 to be like, and a Marissa Meyer shopping spree for companies. Like, did that feel <laughs> yeah. amazing or was it stressful or both? 
it's such a great question. I don't know if I've properly reflected on it. Not dissimilar from other founders. I'm always focused on like what's next on what we're currently what's solving. Tomorrow, like, right. Yeah. What's tomorrow? I gotta go solve these five things, right? Yeah. Saw the vision so clearly and I saw the consolidation that would happen. I think I felt an urgency for the business and for our customers around mm. doing it, right? That was really what was driving it. And strategically, it made absolute sense. It was like when we made the decision to go into COVID testing, everyone called it a pivot. And I was so confused by that. And I'd actually correct mm. them because I would say, wait a minute, like we've been around for four years, five years doing at-home decentralized testing so that people don't have right. to expose other people in public. And we can prescribe off of that and we can give you your telehealth consult and your diagnosis and you can use it with your employer. And not only is this not a pivot, there has never been a moment more central to our entire mission of why we exist, right? right? And right. so I was like super motivated by this and it was very similar with these COVID deals. is the pivot. COVID is the global human health yeah. pivot. Right. Everyone right? pivots, like, right? right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. You'd been there. Like, so hey, I was, here we are. And, you know, I tried to not, it's not helpful, but I, I would t bristle a little bit at this, right? Because I was like, yeah. listen, we, we were actually very well positioned. And so with these deals, you know, it was something where it just was very, very clear. And I think when you make these decisions from a strategy and a customer perspective, it actually becomes very easy in those moments. And certainly going from the scale we were at in, in 2016 to we have over 600 people now, we managed over 40 million tests last year. It's almost hard to fathom. But I have to tell mm. you, I never thought, I never really thought about what it would mean to reach scale as a founder. I just kept one foot in right. front of the other. And I just kept trying to take the next step that I knew would get us through whatever the next door was. I also think that's a reason why the company has scaled and grown is because I didn't have these sort of markers of like what would be success. We just sort of kept going. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like integrating like other teams, right? And I assume like other founders and leaders of those teams who were like been their own boss for a while and yeah. now... They're like, hey, what's up? What's that like? Yeah, listen, I mean, anyone who says to you M&A and integration is like super easy and all they want to do is just integrate new companies every day. <laughs> Obviously, should join our team because they might be better than, <laughs> than we are at it. But, but it is necessary oftentimes because you can really jump like 10 steps ahead. Yeah. But it takes a long time to get through integration. I mean, we are one year in and we are just now launching a lot of our integrated solutions. We did one really smart thing, which actually was not my suggestion, but our board member, Sanjay, who is the CEO of PWN. We actually got a small core group of people at all levels, cross-functionally, from all three companies together. And we did a new mission, vision, and values before mm. the deal finished. And so we announced oh, wow. this to the company the day that we announced the deal. And we were clear that it had pulled from all three legacy organizations. And we talked about examples. We talked about what this would look like. We started a vision and value Slack channel where we award people with Amazon gift certificates for complimenting others for living in our values. And so I think there's things you can do to try to make it easier, but the hard work of just the actual operations of integrating everything, even down to platforms, it takes a while to see that full value. And you just have yeah. to be, you have to know going in. So even when it's the best deal on paper and it turns out to be the best deal for the business, it's just hard yards. And a lot of teams may not want to take that on. And it's not necessary for growth, but for us, we really felt like we had to move quickly. And this is the strategic moment, certainly in diagnostics and certainly in virtual care. And we wanted to stay ahead in the leadership position. Just a sort of add-on question to that and also like call back to something you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. You mentioned taking an organization that was a profit-focused, PE-based organization and then a venture-backed, mm -hmm. you know, 
shoot for the moon, let's aim for scale. So how did you actually deal with that in practice? Yeah. Like, is that seems like an aspect that would be difficult or has the nature of the organization, what is the new right. nature of the organization? I well, when we came together, both companies, PWN Health and then Everly Well, had experienced, I mean, breakneck growth during 2020. Right. And so suffice it to say, both were now high growth Right. Whoever they were backed by, right? They were very, very <laughs> high growth organizations. PWN had gone from like a team of maybe 30 to over 130. We had gone from 60 people to 250, right, in a year. So I think that actually helped. I will also say though, like the reality is you were talking about hundreds of people who had been working 24-7 since March mm-hmm. of 2020 right. to support this incredible service that we were all offering and then to announce an acquisition, nobody is doing less work no. during integration, right? I think that it was a real ask and acknowledgement of the team to say, this is why we're doing this. It's going to get a little harder before it gets easier, but look at the opportunity ahead. Look at how much bigger our opportunity just became to serve our customers right. and our clients. And I do believe we're fortunate in that we have this mission to orient people around and to help them see the value that they're delivering in the world. And I think that does make it easier when you're asking people to just continue on this path because the moment it's too important to slow down in. But it's a balance and you have to acknowledge it. Yeah, that's like Jordan and... I have recently gone through a merger of our own. And he's talking about our wedding. <laughs> right. Yes. Our civil ceremony. No. I love it. I'm talking, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about our acquisition by Apollo, yes. PE mm-hmm. firm. Yes. Yep. But like, That's what it's you disruptive. Want, by the way, you want a PE firm to buy. <laughs> Listen, they've been good. They've been good so oh, far. A VC, a VC media technology yeah, startup. Right. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> That's what we wanted. No, yeah. they have been really nice. I mean, not nice. I haven't spoken to a single one of them, but like they haven't <laughs> f- us yet. So that yeah. is this isn't under duress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're really great. <laughs> But the transition was difficult is yeah. my main point, right? Like it's disruptive. Like there's just too much uncertainty. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it doesn't emotional. matter whether it's net benefit for either party. It's like, I don't know what is happening yeah. necessarily, right? Yeah. And also you're not necessarily willing to trust the sources of people telling mm-hmm. you that things are happening. As transparent as people want to be, there's going to be some doubt. People mm-hmm. are human and they're concerned with their futures, right? And they're going to have to be suspicious of things sometimes. But that seems like a huge challenge, yes. again, combined with you've got a bunch of human beings who are under this immense amount of stress, working harder than they've ever mm-hmm. worked in their lives. And you're saying, also, we want to continue working harder than we've ever worked in our lives while you're dealing with this, right? right. Like, it's a huge, huge challenge, especially as a leader of all of this, right? For you personally, that's a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I think yeah. you have to build trust because the number one thing that people are searching for, not only in their jobs, but in life, but certainly at their employer is security and safety, emotional safety, security and transparency. And I'll tell you, one of the ways we built trust really early is we would tell people when we didn't know an answer, right? So it's not, hey, some like, let me direct you over here so I can distract you from your question about benefits, about equity. Mm -hmm. I didn't have an answer for everybody on equity. And I'm sure many times it wasn't the answer they wanted to hear, but it was important to me that we were authentic and transparent and that whatever commitments we did make, we made them and we followed up on them. Yeah. Yeah, And I think sometimes telling people, hey, I don't have an answer or, hey, we're not going to be able to do that is just as important because people just don't want BS. They don't want BS and they don't want to anchor on something that's uncertain or to not have a clear answer. And, you know, we we overhauled all our benefits, but even things when you're doing this in organization, 
organizations, like bringing everybody on all the same benefits with all the same match and leave and everything else that took until the new year. When like leveling positions and like, what is an associate director versus the, yeah. And it is distracting and you want to keep people focused on the goal at hand. And yet I understand why it is. And so my kind of, not that I didn't expect this, but certainly lesson learned is, is this is not a one-year endeavor. Like, oh, we acquired them last year. And so here's all the benefits, right? It may look that way on paper. Yeah, yeah. But as a leader, you're still in this and really making sure that you're listening to the organization and really bringing everyone together. Yeah, that was something I was going to ask, too, because I feel like Daryl and I had a taste of this today, actually, but pretty much all the time, which is that, like, people are the hardest part, I think, right? Like, of being a manager. I really do. Listen, listen, team. If you're listening, no, no. like, I mean, that's not in a bad way. Don't try to back figure out when we record it. No, (laughs) not in a bad way. It's just like, of course, a human is going to be more complicated than solving any problem or looking at any data because they're human. Right. And they're like motivated in different ways. And all of them are different. They all have different focuses. They all have different concerns. They all have different aspirations. And trying to like filter a single message is hard for me. And we have a team of like 30 and you right. you have 600 people working for you. So like yeah. at a certain point, you have to know that like within my parameters of my value system and what I think the strategy should be, there are going to be people that don't agree and that's fine, right? Like mm-hmm. a couple outliers. And we can accept that point. But then for everyone else, there's still a lot of friction and filtering in terms of what are you actually hearing what I'm saying? And is it mm-hmm. landing right or is it not and Mm. can it be internalized and acted upon like that part is hard i think because everyone's different and they're hearing different versions and they're picking out what is important to them and (laughs) leaving out the stuff that isn't and i'm just curious how you do that how you think about that yeah i mean the consistency the simplicity the repetition of the message is so so important and listen like we're in a hard business I didn't start this business like, let me create some SaaS platform where it's like set it and forget it and it's auto-renewed and all those things. I'm not saying there's not value in that. Certainly get higher multiples. But for us, this is a people-based company. Like we have hundreds of physicians and nurses counseling people with positive test results every day, right? We have people in our fulfillment centers kidding overnight to fulfill timeline orders and meet deadlines. And we have great technology too, but this is not an easy business. Mm -hmm. It is fundamentally people-based. You have people doing very different roles in this organization, engineers, lab assistants, R&D, right? It couldn't be a more diverse group of people in all respects. I have to deliver that message, but I will tell you, I say very little compared to what my leadership team is actually communicating and driving. My goal is always, frankly, to make myself obsolete. It's not to say that obviously the CEO doesn't have an important role to play, but I don't want anything to be too dependent on one person, one message, frankly, on one founder, because I think that actually doesn't speak to the durability of the opportunity and of the company itself. We focus a lot. I mean, I am in internal comms and external comms constantly because Mm. I really want to be sure that what we're saying is transparent, it's authentic. And, you know, we share more probably than any company of our scale. And in fact, when I can't share something, I will actually say, I actually can't share that with you, but I want you to know why. And my belief is if we can translate this, we have a very smart group of people working at Everly Health. People can actually understand how their role better fits in the company. They can make better decisions. They can raise their hand if they see something wrong and be empowered to do that. And I think the strategy that many companies have, which is like share as little as possible 
only people at the top have all the information and like just tell them the bare minimum. I really want to be a different example. And that requires a lot of mutual trust. Trust in us as leaders in the company and knowing that we're telling the truth and then trust also in the employees. But I'm hopeful that that strategy will kind of be a new model and something that will drive our success. But it's been a core value. Like one of my core values is transparency in my life. It's how I've always operated. We actually like was our first core value at the company in price, in results, in not selling data, in what you're getting and what you're not. And like, it's just something that I think has been a thread throughout maybe the impact and the mark I've had on how I've built the company as well. Yeah, that's it shouldn't be understated how crucial that is. The part especially about, you know, making yourself redundant, right? Especially Mm. in this particular, in like tech industry in general, because it's the opposite approach that I see so many times. A lot of founders, and I'm not going to name names, but like hang on to things long, long after the point where they Mm -hmm. should. Like I'm talking well into when the company is a public company and they're like, this can't survive without me. And I'm going to go out of my way to find ways to make certain that that's the case. Right. Which is like a weird egotistical sort of self-sabotage that is in some ways mystifying, but in some ways very understandable human <laughs> but it's human but i mean you can see how many times that it is one like led to hyper growth and success which means it's emulated a lot right, right? like not necessarily right. that strategy but the other strategies that got you to success also happen to be paired with this yeah, they person cluster who around thinks that. yeah right. that they have to like hold as much of it as possible and so it becomes emulated right like i can't tell you how many founders especially around the time that we first met julia like yeah. right in the 2015-2016 era, where I was hearing early stage founders tell me that their inspiration was Steve Jobs and right. Travis Kellen. And like some of these names were like, oh, you know, like I wish, I mean, Steve Jobs was an innovator and an amazing creator, but like nobody wanted him to be their boss, really. Like he wasn't <laughs> known as like a nice, transparent, fostering your growth kind of guy. You know what I mean? Like he was a win at all costs guy. I don't know. But like, how did you, did you set out from the beginning to be intentional about that? Or was it something you had to kind of grow into as a, as a founder and a leader? You know, I think my focus has always been on how successful can I build this company to be? Mm. I'm an introvert by nature. I know I do a fair amount of press and media for the business, but like, I'm a very private person. I really, really care about solving this problem fundamentally. But I will say I much more identify with my founder title than I do my CEO title. Mm -hmm. I view myself as being in whatever role the business needs me to be in to be successful. And right now that's CEO. And that is a decision that is made by a lot of people, including me. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is something for me that I've never understood. And maybe, and this could just be innate for me personally, why people glom onto titles. Uh, it's right, just, I'm right. not a title-driven person. And in fact, we're very specific about that when we hire on the executive team as well, which is yeah. like... I mean, it's easy not to be picky about titles when you're founder and CEO. Jordan. It is accurate. <laughs> it's a really right. good point, Jordan. But I will... I'm the boss. What about if you didn't have the title? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's something I remember I'll tell... This is the comms point. One time I introduced myself on an all-hands as the founder. And I just said founder. I didn't intentionally leave off CEO. And I yeah. figured out very quickly, I can't make those mistakes anymore because then immediately people thought that like they were like well, who's the CEO? the CEO yeah <laughs> and I was like oh no no it's just I just said founder so you know you do have to like be very buttoned up about these things and look I'm running now a big company but I will say like my authenticity around this I think really comes like 
I want to be successful in the sense that I do want the company to win and be a generational company. But I have said from the beginning, I want it to be generational, which clearly can't always involve me. And I have to hire much better people. Also, by the way, me more than maybe in other sectors, I cannot and should not be the expert in a lot of these different areas. Right. I'm not a physician. I'm not a pathologist, et cetera. And so I have been forced since the beginning to make sure that I had a lot of really strong people around the table helping to do this right. And so I think that has been a model that just I got used to and really carried with me in this process. There's something but really liberating about that. There, there right? is. Because mm-hmm. like we often, yeah. I mean, there's obviously a huge benefit and advantage to being a founder who like spent 20 years in this industry, right? Like that's great and super cool. And VCs love that. But there's something, there's another hidden gem in the idea that like, I don't really know much about this industry, but I'm the kind of personality that can bring in, look at the team I've been able to build, right? Because that translates to everything, customers, partners, VCs, hiring, right? Like the list goes on and on. Yeah, recruiting, yeah. Yeah, it's like almost more valuable to an extent. And that's really interesting. I like that. Yeah. I mean, listen, nobody wanted to give me money when I started for that reason. And honestly, I didn't like if you looked at the list of criteria, I wouldn't have probably given me money either. Right. I didn't Mm -hmm. have a background Mm -hmm. in this. I was doing this idea no one really believed was a problem, largely because it affected women at the time and has now become more broad. But I think that I've just continued to build the team and execute and just put the numbers up and hire the right people. We've been very fortunate. And with that growth, you have to both hire a lot of people and people transition out, but just getting incredible leaders and board members around the table that I think are good at holding up the mirror and being able to say like, this is actually what we need to do. Hey, here's some feedback, all those things. And it's made a huge difference. I mean, I had an executive coach back in 2016 to help me navigate all this. And I've had one since then. And I'm shocked by how many people are surprised by that. But there has to be an outlet for you to really be critical and self-reflective as a founder and CEO, because you do have a lot of people oftentimes telling you what you want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that you had it that right? but I think it's also like really useful to Mm. have as soon as you're like in an executive position or mindset like get that because a lot of people leave it for way too long and it has a tremendous impact on the company in its formative stages right and that sets the tone throughout throughout the duration so yeah, I think we're almost out of time, which is crazy because it doesn't it's been sound so like yeah, it doesn't really seem like blew by. I know, I, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's wild and interesting to me that you started because you were in like what were you you were doing money transfer yeah. before. Yes. Like, but you were just like, oh, yes. like you saw this problem and you just wanted to solve the problem. But like, how did you decide that building your own business was going to be the way? Look, I can tell the story truthfully, but very dramatically, that is like, I had this health problem. I was in this journey for six months with all these different doctors, paid all this money out of pocket to the labs. And I just quit my executive corporate job and started this company and had no idea what I was doing. That is truthful. But I will tell you that since I graduated from business school, where I had the unique moment in time to be exposed. I was at HBS during the Great Recession in 2009 to Mm. 2011. That class, two years, spawned like Birchbox, Guilt Group, Rent the Runway, Stitch Fix, Peak, Couping. I have three unicorn founders in addition to me in my section at HBS. (laughs) So like it was this moment where that was like what that experience did for me is say, I knew I wanted to be a founder. I didn't become a founder until about four or five years post business school, but I was like the nerd who outside of my job, which was demanding, would be like meeting with people to go through different industries and ideas. I was 
Oh, and, wow. and for no purpose, like no money, no advising, right? Just going through yeah. different sectors. I'd fly to meet up with friends. We do sessions of whiteboarding days and I you know, would rule out certain industries. But here's what I found in that process. I could come up with a lot of interesting ideas and business models. I didn't care about any of them. Mm, yeah. And so I kind of was still working through that. I actually joined MoneyGram to get exposure to fintech. I thought it was really hot at the time and maybe I'd be able to learn something for a few years and go found something. I was a little late to the game in fintech at the time. Now it's resurged quite a bit, yeah. but at the time there was a lot going on in this space. And I was like, I don't think the timing is right. And so when this happened, I already had a pretty strong foundation and obviously this gut feeling that if I did not found a company, I would regret it the rest of my life. But I also had no qualms of like, I knew exactly how hard this was going to be, which was probably failure and probably impossible. And so I wasn't just going to go do it for something that I didn't really care about. That was really kind of the five years preceding 2015 of that build up to then me having this moment, which then really made the decision pretty easy at the time. Wow. Yeah. It's intense to think you had that. And then you were just had this fire and you were just waiting for like a target. You needed the, well, I guess you had the kindling and you're yeah, waiting for the spark. Exactly. Right? But, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Julia. Always great to talk to you and catch up. And Thanks for yeah, having me. Congrats on everything. It's been quite the story and it'll be quite the story I bet to come. But, Thank yeah. you. Uh, great to see you both again. It's been a little while, especially Jordan, several years. So nice yeah. to see you both. Yeah. yeah, you too. Thanks. All right, Jordan, that was our chat with Julia. She's one of those people who is like just displays a level of confidence and capability that I think is like omnipresent and a little bit. It's reassuring. It's also like if I was working for her, I'd be like, this is great. As someone who's like. Unfortunately, you work for me. Right, exactly. So, so I'm just like <laughs> it's totally different. Mostly envious. I'm like, oh, I wish I had a boss like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. To be honest, don't tell Panzer. But yeah, it's, it's true. She's like confident without being arrogant. Still has like this level of humility and like pragmatism that is coupled with optimism. I mean, like we got into a long discussion on electronic medical records, and that was pretty discouraging to me but Mm. yet her outlook in general on the way that the healthcare industry can change whether it's through like some consolidation around some of these oversaturated pieces of the industry or just through like simplifying and making straightforward some of these things that are really complicated and at times most of the time overpriced still left me feeling hopeful at the end right yeah and i think that that's a hard thing to do when we're talking about the united states healthcare system yeah for sure and i think she's really good at she's articulating a thing where basically she was talking about emr and ehr and depending i guess on your preference whatever you want to call it but like it's a bad situation it's a hopeless situation for her in that one specific but the outcomes are still very possible like she's with that type of person where it's like it doesn't mean we mm-hmm. can't still achieve these great outcomes that i want it's just there's going to be a different road to it right which is yeah fantastic for a founder i really liked also the moments of candor around like I haven't even taken time to self-reflect on my own success or the big moments in the company's history, right? Because I'm just always dealing with tomorrow and what's on the docket and the problems to solve and the new partnerships to forge or whatever, new companies to buy. Yeah. And I do think like, on the one hand, I get it. And I think that's probably the best possible outlook for her. But I also like the moment of like, wow, maybe I should (laughs) do that a little more and like feel the feelings of ultimately becoming a, a pretty successful founder. You know, she would never probably say that outright. Like I am binary successful, right? But like, right. and 
probably that like constant trudge forward is what has given her as much success as she's had. But it was cool to kind of hear her thoughts on leadership and just what it's like to integrate so many companies together and like the best way to do that. And the honesty around like, I don't say the things that I don't know. Like I don't pretend to know something I don't know. And I ask questions and I'm pretty honest. And I think that transparency came through not only in like what she's doing and the company culture and success, but like also just in this podcast, she was pretty transparent with us too. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, I really did appreciate, like you said, that perspective of like, how did you get here was kind of like, well, I just kept taking steps, right? Like that's a really interesting and refreshing way to talk about it. Because a lot of people are like, no, 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 it was always the plan. And it was very 40 chess to arrive here, right? Yeah. But yeah, it rem- and it or also like, reminds me of the Santa Claus is coming to town, stop and go animation. You know, it's like the Rankin Bass animated classic. What you're talking what? about. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, I'm not going to try to sing it. I mean, I don't know like what point you're making. Right <laughs> the song, put one foot in front of the other and soon you'll be walking uh, out that door. You should sing it. Why I'm, I'm not going quick, I know, for folks who don't know. Maybe it'll be. sung originally by Mickey Rooney, who himself does not have a very good voice, but I have a worse oh, voice. Go look it up on YouTube. You're able to <laughs> say that without having sung a single bar. Yeah. And I think a lot of founders, too, will try to like soundbiteify their success. I mm, yeah. just coined that term. But like, I woke up in a sweat one night and I had this thought, right? And like, try to turn it into this story of this point in time and i think more often than not the truth is that it's like i took one step it was the wrong one so i turned back and went in the other direction or i just kept taking these small steps forward and it's this collection which isn't like juicy for us necessarily but like for this audience of founders i think it's like kind of uplifting and encouraging thing to hear that it's just always these small steps over and over every day that get you focus on what you're doing and you know yeah like pay attention there and don't get too anxious about what comes next or whatever but i think it's also cool for founders to hear about you know like she had this idea that she just wanted to do it she wanted to be a founder so bad and then because we talked to people on both sides of this paradigm right there'll be people who are like i never wanted to be a founder it was not in my plan it was not in the cards and then it just kind of like someone had to do it and i figured i guess i have to reluctantly be the one to do it right and then we have people like julia where it's like i always wanted to be a founder and she came from this really unique experience of being in this class of like a bunch of mega founders at Harvard Business School. But then she didn't have the idea, right? She had the drive and ambition, but she didn't have like, but what can I really care about that is going to sustain me through? And then that came later, like years later. That was another thing that when we go back to the transparency thing that really worked for me and made me like her even more was that I think I on people who want to be founders Mm. generally. And I think the reason why that bothers me so much is because you can tell when someone quote, like wants to be an entrepreneur without a passion or drive towards something, but then they pretend that they're passionate or driven towards something. And they pretend that this was what they had to do rather than like, I just really wanted to be a founder. I think the fact that she was like honest about it, she's like, yeah, I wanted to be a founder. And so I explored FinTech because I thought that was really hot. Maybe I'll learn, maybe I'll be able to start a FinTech company. And like, no, the timing wasn't right. It wasn't super into it and then i had this personal pain point that like resonated so deeply with me that i was like aha here's my idea here's how i'm going to be a founder even the fact that she talked about her founder identity being more real or prominent within her than her ceo identity and kind of like building the company in a way where she could be replaceable or redundant was just really refreshing 
right? Like there's nothing wrong with wanting to be an entrepreneur. I think it's like when you aren't transparent about that or candid about that, that it starts to feel a little slimy for some yeah. reason, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's another one of those things where like, is it more about the identity and the perception of the thing than like the thing itself? And it, I think generally tends to rankle, especially me and you, because we're so cool. Yeah, we're <laughs> so cool effortless and chill. Just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're so happy in our mediocrity, you know? <laughs> yeah, like we're so satisfied yeah, with being yeah. middle of the road that it's really bothersome <laughs> when someone wants to be special. Right. Anyway, it's a good place to end, I think. Uh, just yeah, a reminder. I feel like that's a great note to end on. <laughs> Everyone should definitely check out the Austin City Spotlight again, TechCrunch Live, April 6th, this Wednesday. You can participate through Hopin. Also, just check out, we're going to have a ton of Austin based content on the site, lots of articles, profiles, and stuff like that. So check that out as well. And you can click the link in our show notes to register for that, yes. by the way. So, so you can do that right easy now. To, yeah, right now you're listening, you're holding your phone or whatever. You can just go ahead and do it. Yeah, just come in and join the chat. Remind me and Jordan about how inadequate we are. and you know, Totally. I mean, that's a fun way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> at the very least. Uh, all right, thanks. Later. Looking forward to your roasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Cal Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.